Well, thank you very much, and uh, good morning, brethren. Great to see you. Such a wonderful full house. I I hope we have a full house on the internet as well. And uh, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're looking at me and you're thinking, Adrian just doesn't look the same. You're thinking, he's looking a bit shaky, he's looking a bit intimidated. Well, it's such a historic occasion. You know, this is the last time that we meet here in this hall. But that's actually not what's intimidating me. What makes this historic is I believe this is the very first time I have ever spoken here and had Bill Watson in the audience. <laughs> it's quite intimidating when, <laughs> when your mentor is evaluating you as you speak. Uh, certainly very grateful to you, uh, Brother Bill, for all your mentoring and the opportunity to work alongside you. So thank you very much. I want to take you back in time, brethren, to 43 years ago, 1975, Cologne, Germany, when a young lady named Vera Branders was putting on a concert. She was only 17 years old, the youngest concert promoter in Germany. And in a single day, she went from extreme excitement to complete despair in a single day. What happened was she had arranged for the famous jazz pianist, Keith Jarrett, to perform at the Cologne Opera House. And 1,400 excited fans were coming to see this wonderful pianist perform. He was going to perform completely improvised with no sheet music, And there was such excitement over this performance. It was an evening performance. When Keith Jarrett arrived in the afternoon, one of the first things that he did was he checked out the piano. And the first thing he found was the piano was too small. I guess you have a a grand piano, and then maybe like a baby grand, and then that's something else. (laughs) That's a tiny piano. So he went to uh, evaluate the piano, and as it turned out, it was too small, number one. Number two, it was in a state of complete disrepair. The white notes were out of tune, the black keys were sticking, the pedals didn't work, and it was too light of a piano to fill the concert hall. So in frustration, he declared the piano unplayable, and he walked out. And Vera had 1,400 fans who had paid good money to come to this concert. She was devastated. Her career was over. I want to talk to you today about the unplayable piano. And I want to use the unplayable piano as a metaphor for our preparation for Passover. And I'm talking about the unplayable piano as opposed to the self-playing piano (laughs) that we had earlier. So I want to look at how a piano works, and then what does it have to do with our preparation for Passover? I'm just learning about pianos. I went on YouTube. A grand piano has 88 keys. But did you know that it has 10,000 parts? And it's quite a sophisticated instrument. If you see how intricate this is, uh, and how the parts work together, when you strike a key, The hammer 
So you strike this key. It's sitting on a balance beam, which hits a uh, cap, which pushes a whippin, which then pushes a jackhammer, which causes the jackhammer to hit the string, but not rest on the string. There's a damper to keep it back from the, spr the string so that if the pianist wants to hit it multiple times, they can get many, many vibrations on the string. And then there's a lot of other complicated parts that allow for the playing of this grand piano. And all the parts work together intricately. I would encourage you to YouTube how a piano works. It's quite fascinating. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. Because I think this 88 keys and 10,000 parts has everything to do with what we're doing here in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, and in verse 12, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So we have one instrument called the grand piano, but it's got 10,000 parts. But the 10,000 parts are one instrument. Well, Paul is saying the same thing here, that the body is one, but it has a lot of different members. In verse 14, he says, For the body is not one member, but many. And in verse 18, he says, But now has God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. And again, when you study the intricacy of this instrument called the piano, uh, the manufacturer of the piano sets the parts, every one of them, in this body as it pleases him, so that it works perfectly and intricately together. So are we in Christ. None of us are in Christ by accident. It's a carefully arranged body, and we are set in the body specifically where the Father, where it pleases the Father. And then in verse 19 he says, if they were all one member, where were the body? So everyone cannot be like you. Everyone cannot be like me. We're different. But then God sets us in the body, side by side. And we're so different. We think differently. We have different experiences. We have different perspectives. And yet we have to work together. And you may say something to me, perfectly innocent, doesn't mean anything to you. But because of all the baggage that I'm carrying, that's a loaded statement. And I start thinking, whoa, how could you say that? And then my imagination gets the better of me, and I start projecting onto you all kinds of thoughts that have nothing to do with you. My baggage, my background. And yet we have to figure out, how do we work side by side? So, if we were all the same, where would the body be? But now, are they many members, yet but one body? So this diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, diversity of experience, it's good. It's by design. And every one of us are here by design. Look with me to the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in chapter 4. 
where he says something similar to what he's saying to the Corinthians. In Ephesians 4, and beginning in verse 11, he says that he gave some, again, he sets it in the body as it pleases him, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting or the maturing of the saints. Why do the saints have to be perfected? For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, drop down to verse 16. And let's read this together. From whom, that is Jesus Christ, the whole body fitly joined together. What we just saw in Corinthians, that God sets us in the body as it pleases him. And now what we're seeing here in Ephesians is that the body is fitly joined together. Again, if we think of that grand piano with 10,000 parts, it's not just thrown together. There's incredible thought, design, expertise in how these pieces are to come together. So in the same way, here we are in the body of Christ, by design, by the grand designer, he's placed us in the body. And it says we are fitly joined together. It means that how we are connected to one another is by the architect, by the grand designer. He's the one that decides how the pieces go together. And he says here, the whole body, so from Christ, the whole body is fitly joined together. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, in addition to it being fitly joined together, it is then compacted by that which every joint supplies. So the unity, the tightness of unity, comes from what every joint supplies. So again, if we look at how a piano is designed, the parts, the parts are joined expertly. If we look at our body, the parts are joined expertly. The shoulder isn't connected to the knee. You know that old song we used to sing when we were kids, uh, the knee bones connected to, I forget the words now, it's been so long. <laughs> I've been around a long time. But you know, the, the hip bones connected to the thigh bone and the thigh bone, you know that song. So there's connection, that as we are in the body of Christ, there's an expectation that the joints will supply something. Now, let's read on. So it's, it's compacted, it's tightened by that which every joint supplies. And we saw in Corinthians that it's for edification, and here even in, in, in Ephesians. But it says that, the, the joints supply something to the body according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. So every one of us is a part, and every one of us receives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works effectively in each part. But it's not the part that supplies. The Holy Spirit works effectively in the part so that when that part joins with the other part, the joint is what supplies to the body. So we need to figure out where has Christ designed us to be in the body, Christ and the Father, because we're set in the body. 
So where's your joint? What gift of the Spirit do you have? And to whom should you be joined? Who's your complement? Who has a complementary gift to work with you? And then you work together to supply. But the Spirit has to be working effectively in you. Spirit has to be working effectively in me so that we can come together to supply edification to the body. According to the effectual working in the measure, the, the measure, the, the amount of spirit that every part is given, then we make increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So as the spirit is working in each of us, and we as joints learn to work together to supply edification to the body, the body matures. The body gets stronger. Now, it doesn't always work. Sometimes there are fractures. Sometimes there are breaks. I can remember as a little boy, I was in grade six, and it was recess time, and uh, I think maybe 50 or 60 of us kids had recess. And I guess, you know, we have a lot of energy. So the teacher wants to get us to burn off some energy. So she decided she would organize a race. And she had us all lined up. And it was probably like a 50-meter dash. And I was so keyed up wanting to win that as soon as she said, on your mark, get set, go, boom, I was out of the gate. And the next thing I remember, all I saw was feet. I, I just sort of overran myself and collapsed. And I got up, and I was in such pain. I was in terrible pain. And I went to the teacher to tell her I'm in pain, and she looked, and I had a, I had a little scratch on my elbow. And she looked at it, and she said, oh, you'll get over that. And so I went back to class, and I am in agony. I, I'm in trauma. And, I, and the, my arm is just throbbing. And I put my arm on the desk, and I'm looking at it and saying, it doesn't look right. Because my arm is here, but my hand is on the desk. There's a complete break, like a complete break. The, the arm goes here, and then the hand continues down here. And there's this huge gap. I'm like, this is weird, right? So <laughs> I, I'm in agony. I go through the rest of the day. I get home. My mom wasn't home. When she came home, I said, Mom, I'm in pain. She looked at my arm, and she just, like, she was just panicked, rushed me to the hospital. It had started to heal or started to mend broken. So they had to break it again to get it to set. Then they put a cast on it, and I was wearing this cast for about eight weeks, six or eight weeks. When they finally uh, said it, I can get the cast off, back then we wore concrete casts, <laughs> and they used to take a saw <laughs> to cut it open, and they cut it open, and nobody warned me what I was going to say. Uh, my arm had atrophied. The muscle was gone. It was just bone. I, I, I looked at it, and I just threw up. I was just sick. In any case, over time, I regained the use of my hand. In fact, today, it's stronger than when it was. So sometimes there are breaks in the body, but these breaks can be healed. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, so that we can see now why we need to mend these breaks, why we need to mend these fractures in the body as we prepare to observe the Lord's Passover. In 1 Corinthians 11 
and verse 26. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. There's a lot of uh, breaks. There were a lot of fractures in this congregation. And so the Apostle Paul is now speaking to the congregants to get them to be about their father's business, which is to be edifying the body for the work of the ministry. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Paul says to them, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So this is what we're doing. When we observe the Passover, we are showing the Lord's death. And, and as time unfolds, as we move toward the finish line, this death is going to become more and more meaningful to us. And we must fully grasp it. So every Passover, it matters. It matters how we take the Passover. Because we have to understand the Lord's death, and we have to show the Lord's death. And in verse 27, he says, Therefore, because this is so profound, therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So first of all, in verse 27, we want to notice the word whosoever. There are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. There's no privilege that we have to say, well, for me it's okay. I can take this Passover and I don't have to worry about how I take it. No exceptions. Whosoever takes this Passover of the Lord unworthily shall be what? Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. This should cause us to pause. This should cause us to be very concerned, to say, am I ready for this year's Passover? Or is it possible that I could take the Passover unworthily? Now, it doesn't say we must be worthy of the Passover. We can't. We cannot be worthy of the Passover. But it does say we can take the Passover unworthily. And this should cause us fear. This should cause us trembling, that we should take the Lord's Passover unworthily. How could we do that? He goes on. He says in verse 28, let a man examine himself. So, so don't go into the Passover unconsciously. Don't go into the Passover arrogantly. Don't go into the Passover overconfidently. Examine yourself. And I'm going to examine myself. And so, after we've examined ourselves, let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So it's the Lord's will that we take the Passover. Not unconsciously, though. We must examine ourselves, get in a worthy mindset for the Passover, and then take the Passover. Now, how could we take it unworthily? He says here, in verse 29, for he, so go ahead and examine ourselves so that we can take it worthily, for he that eats and drinks unworthily. So we haven't examined ourselves. We've gone in unconsciously. We've gone in uh, arrogantly. We've gone in overconfidently. He that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation unto himself. And I can't apologize for this. I, I can't dilute this. This is the text. That if any of us, without exception, if any of us take the Lord's Passover unworthily while we are taking the Passover and feeling quite righteous, 
in God's eyes, damnation has just come upon us. Better not to take the Passover than to take it unworthily. So this should cause us concern. How do we take it worthily? How do we take it unworthily so that we can avoid it? Well, he explains. What does it mean to take the Lord's Passover unworthily? He that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself. What do you mean, Paul? He explains, not discerning the Lord's body. This is what it means to take the Passover in an unworthy manner, is that we take it without discerning the Lord's body. We become guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord if we take the Lord's Passover without discerning the Lord's body. The Lord's body, as we know from chapter 12, is the church. There's one body with many members. And the members are not one member. There's diversity. People are different. But we need to discern, we need to understand the difference between a human being that has the Holy Spirit of God and one that does not. If we can't tell the difference, if to us everybody's just the same, we are not discerning the Lord's body. We need to understand, you know, whether it's part of our organization or not, there's organization and there's organism. The spiritual organism, any human being that has the Holy Spirit of God, is a member of, of the Lord's body. We need to discern that. If we mistreat any member of the Lord's body, we are mistreating the Lord. We are causing pain to the Lord. To then come and take the Passover as if we care about the Lord's death and suffering, when we are causing his suffering, is to take the Passover unworthily, in an unworthy manner. He says, For this cause, in verse 30, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And he explains in chapter 12 that there are among them some with the gift of healing. But not everybody has the gift of healing. But if you don't discern the Lord's body, you're not going to spot those members that have the gift of healing who may be physically the poor member, the member that you would think, oh, he's nobody, but God has put a gift of healing there. And you're not discerning the Lord's body. And so for this cause, many are weak and many are sickly and die. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord to be corrected that we should not be condemned with the world. So in other words, in verse 32, if we don't judge ourselves and we take the Passover, we are bringing the damnation that the world is going to face, we're bringing on ourselves because we will be ejected from the body and we will suffer with the, the wrath of God with the world. So we need to stay in the body and that means discerning the Lord's body. Look at chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. He says here in verse 16, Don't you know that you are the temple of God? You're the temple of God. God dwells within you. So these human vessels actually carry the Spirit of God. We are the temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So what, what are the implications of that? Verse 17. 
If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. These, these, this is serious. This is serious. That it's possible for us to be in the body of Christ and defile the body of Christ and take the Passover as well. And the whole time, even though we look the part, we're acting the part, we're actually bringing damnation upon ourselves. God wants us to have this sense of high regard for Christ's body, of honor for Christ's body. And he says here, anybody who defiles the temple, anybody, again, without exception, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. It's set apart for holy use. Which temple you are? Look at chapter 6, where Paul continues this lesson. And in verse 15, he says, Don't you know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the, the members of a harlot? God forbid. So even though this is not our problem, it was a problem with the Greeks here, they were uh, going to prostitutes. But Paul is saying what you're doing when you do that is you're taking a member of the body of Christ and you're connecting it to a harlot. God forbid that you should do such a thing. So by extension, we understand that anything that happens to a member of the body with the Holy Spirit, anything that happens to that member, it's happening to Christ. It's happening to Christ. I can remember my first job. Uh, I, had, uh, I was 15 and I wanted to work. I wanted to help my mom uh, to pay the bills. And so I got the yellow pages and I just started calling all the companies one after the other, to see if they had, you know, do you have, do you, are you hiring summer students? And I must have got to, like, the letter P. <laughs> when somebody from the letter C called me back to say, are you still looking for work? I said, yes, I am. So they said, well, come on in. And so I came in, and I got the job. And I can remember uh, Rocky, the movie Rocky had just come out. I ran all the way home with the music Rocky in my head, <laughs> like I won, right? So I got this uh, summer job, and I was working in a metal factory. And it's dangerous in a metal factory. And I was uh, carrying, I remember two injuries I had. One was I was carrying these big sheets of metal with a colleague, and I was, it was, I was losing my grip on it. So I kind of tossed it in the air to get a better grip, and I ended up taking the corner of the sheet metal and jabbing it, nearly cut an artery, and so blood everywhere. That wasn't the big injury, though. The big injury was when I was working on a machine. It was a new machine, and we were punching holes in the metal. And every time you put the metal block in the machine, when the posts come down to punch a hole, you're wearing gloves and it pulls your hands back so that you don't get your hands caught. Well, it malfunctioned. Fortunately, we were punching small holes because it didn't pull my hand back and this thing went straight through my finger and it punched a hole straight. I have the scar to this day. And I went to the doctor and he was just stunned. He's like, I don't know how this went through your finger and didn't touch the bone. Because we could have been looking at an amputation. Okay? Sometimes the body breaks. Sometimes amputation is required. Look at Acts 5. Sometimes it's unfortunate, but for the sake of the body, amputation is required. We're going to see such an amputation here in Acts 5. 
And, and this, is, this is the God of love acting for the sake of the body. In Acts 5, verse 1, there was a certain man, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, they sold a possession, and I think you know the story. They, they claimed that they had sold it for such and such a price, but they were actually holding some back. And in verse 4, Peter explains, well, while it remained, wasn't it your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, gave up the spirit. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. We just witnessed an amputation. There is no way that God was going to allow in the foundation of the body this type of deception. So for the sake of the body, there needed to be an amputation. Not just one, but two. Going on, he says, it was about the space, verse 7, of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in, and Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out. Then she fell down straight away at his feet and yielded up the Spirit. And the, men, the young men came in and found her dead and carried her forth, buried her by her husband, a second amputation. And in verse 11, again, great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And as we prepare to take the Passover, great fear should come upon us. This is not a ritual. This is not just, oh, yeah, Passover. How are you doing, brother? Oh, drink the wine, eat the bread. Okay, that was good. This is, okay, this is meaningful. This is about the Lord's death. And we're coming together to keep this Passover. Let's ensure we keep it worthily. Let's ensure that as we keep the Passover, God is pleased with us. He's looking down with his son, and they are smiling on us. Not damned. Damned. What, what is he doing? What is she doing? How dare they take the Passover in such a state? My wife is an accomplished pianist. She's actually an instructor, used to teach. We were visiting a congregation, and uh, we got there not in time for her to practice, so we just got there in time, sang the hymns, and then she was introduced to the special music. And so she got up and she started playing, and the piano was unplayable. The keys are in disrepair. It needed tuning. And she did her best, and I'm like, I don't recognize this piece. <laughs> but anyway, she played it. And then afterwards, people were so encouraging. You know, brethren can be very encouraging. And one of the brethren says to my wife, says to my wife uh, are you just learning, dear? <laughs> you did well. <laughs> but, you know, the piano, the piano was in disrepair. And sometimes our relationships can be in disrepair. Sometimes the notes stick, the keys are out of tune. Look at Galatians 4, because this can just come out of nowhere. And no one is immune. Even the Apostle Paul was not immune. In Galatians 4, and verse 13, he says, You know how, through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at first. So something was wrong with Paul. 
we believe was a problem with his eyes, uh, but he, he didn't, that didn't hold him back. Even though he had this disability, he continued to preach the gospel. And then in verse 14 he says, And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not. So they didn't hold this against him, they didn't look down on him, nor rejected. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So they recognized him as a true apostle of God. Yeah, he had a disability, but that was beside the point. He spoke the, the words of life. And they recognized this and even recognized him as if an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And then he asked the question in verse 15, Where is then the blessedness that you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. But something happened. Something, the, the relationship broke down. They went from this great love for the apostle, receiving him even, even as Christ, even to the point where they, if it was possible, they could have taken out their own eyes to give it to him to preach the gospel. That's the love they had for him. And then it broke down. And he says, uh, you know, what, what, what happened to the blessedness? You, you, you would have given me your own eyes. And then in verse 16 he says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So the apostle tells them the truth. And they turned on him. And the relationship broke. And it fractured. And there's no way they can go into the Passover with this fracture, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, these fractures, this state of disrepair, it's prophesied. The prophecy says, if we are a p the grand piano, the prophecy says the grand piano will be unplayable. Look at Matthew 24. Prophecy says that Christ is going to sit down at the grand piano, ready to perform a masterpiece, and the piano is going to let him down. Matthew 24 and verse 10. Speaking of a time just ahead of us, Christ prophesies that at this time shall many be offended. Not a few. It doesn't say a few, it doesn't say some. At this time, just ahead, the conditions will be so horrendous, many shall be offended and shall what? Shall betray one another. This is what we have to inoculate ourselves against. This is why we need to be full of the Holy Spirit. This is why we need to show the Lord's death till he comes. So that when our lives are on the line, we understand the Lord's death. We understand that he, when, when evil, when Satan through everything he had at Christ. Christ conquered all of that evil through love. And he demonstrated that love through his death. And if we get to grasp this year after year after year, we conquer evil through love. We don't return kind for kind. They give us evil, we have this love of God that the Passover underlines every year. And now... When our lives are on the line, yeah, I'll lay down my life for my friends. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And we've learned this Passover after Passover after Passover. You want me to betray my brother? No. No. I love not my life to the death. But however, 
the prophecy says, we're not taking the Passover seriously, we don't really understand the power of love, we become offended, and many betray one another, and the piano becomes unplayable. And Christ doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at offended. He goes on to say betrayal. And he doesn't stop at betrayal either. What does the text say? And shall hate one another. What a tragedy. And this is, in my Bible, this is in red. This is saying, this is the Lord's words direct. That a time is coming when the piano is in a state of complete disrepair. Verse 12. And because iniquity shall abound, the love, the, the Lord's death is about love. The love of many shall wax cold. So we have to, we have to work on this. Look at Philippians 2. We have to, you know, when it says many, that doesn't have to be us. It doesn't have to be our congregations. It's going to happen. It just doesn't have to happen to us. And the Lord tells us ahead of time so that it doesn't happen to us. So if we take this seriously, we can be in the category that pleases God. If we read this over and say, yeah, who cares? Then there's high risk, high probability that we fail. In Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul says, Fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, that unity of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. So as we come into the Passover, what's our, what are our motivations? What are our motives? Are we doing anything through strife, through vainglory? We've got to get rid of this. This is like a, a clue that we may not be pleasing to the Lord. So if we see these clues, let's flush it out, get rid of it. But in the opposite, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And then dropping down to verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So Paul was in prison. He couldn't get to them. It's very important. They were always obedient to him. Now they really have to obey him in his absence. He says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this uh, work out and fear, it's in the plural. It's in the plural. He's saying to the congregation, together work this out. And not only is it in the plural, it's in the imperative. It's a command. And not only is it in the imperative, it's in the middle voice. And in Greek, the middle voice means it's something you do for your own benefit. So it's like I say to you, uh, go and get something to eat, or go and fix a meal. If I say it in the uh, active voice, I'm saying go and get something, go and fix a meal, then it means you're, uh, you're my servant and I'm giving you a command to do something for me. If I say it in the middle voice, go and fix a meal, it's what I'm really saying is go and fix a meal for yourself, for your own benefit. So he's saying work out together this salvation where you put on the mind of Christ. It's an imperative in the middle voice. You're doing it for your own good. So we're doing this so that we can take the Passover for our own good, so that we can fulfill the requirement of God. As we conclude, I want to say that all artists, how many artists do we have? Painters, drawers, any, any artists, musicians, yes? Yeah. 
All artists understand something, and I think you'll agree with me, that there's no such thing as art without constraints. Art has constraints. A piano has 88 keys. It doesn't have 89, right? Uh, a, a painter has a canvas, and that's it. It's the canvas. There, there are borders. There are constraints to art. But those constraints actually release the artist's creativity. And it's very interesting, the hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is a hymn that was written by John Newton, who was a slave ship owner, who came to Christ, came to understand Jesus Christ as his savior, and repented. And he wrote this song, Amazing Grace, but he wrote it to the music of the slaves. And this music spilled over into the Negro spirituals. And these Negro spirituals, what's fascinating about them is all of them are played with only five keys of the piano. And they're only the black keys. So five black keys are, are the, under, the, the, the notes for the melody of all Negro spirituals. So Amazing Grace is known as a white Negro spiritual <laughs> because it, it is restricted to these five black notes. But that's the kind of creativity that is released in the face of constraints. Vera's career was over. She went outside crying, and she saw Keith Jarrett in his vehicle. It was pouring rain, and she went up beside him in the rain and begged him not to cancel the concert. Meanwhile, she was scrambling. She was trying to get the piano replaced, couldn't get it replaced, tried to get it tuned. It wasn't tuned. And she just pleaded with him. And he finally looked at her and he said, only for you. And he went back into the concert hall. He went back over to the piano. I'm going to demonstrate. And he figured out which keys were working and which keys weren't. He figured out that the, the keys in the lower register were not so, actually with the higher register that weren't working properly, so he stayed in the lower register. And he decided to stand so that he could get more sound out of it to fill the hall. You didn't think I was going to play this, did you? <laughs> I just thought I'd come over here for effect. <laughs> but Jennifer, maybe you could play it for us. So he went on to play, and something magical happened. Because of the fact that he stayed away from the upper notes, and he stayed with the notes that worked and, and just played a, a very uh, fluid, melodious tune, the, the attendees loved it. it. It is his most requested jazz album. It's the most requested solo, piano, jazz album of all time. In fact, it's the most popular solo, piano album of all time. Faced with these constraints of this unplayable piano, the master came, accepted the constraints, and played a masterpiece. And that is what Jesus Christ is going to do. That is what Jesus Christ is going to do. The difference between Christ and Keith Jarrett is Keith Jarrett had no idea he was going to be confronted with an unplayable piano. Jesus Christ prophesied that the piano will be unplayable. Keith Jarrett did not want to play. He came to the piano reluctantly. Jesus Christ wants to play this piano. Look at Zechariah 4. 
Zechariah 4 and verse 6, breaking into the thought, Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so by extension, it's the same to us. God calls the foolish things of the world and says that his weakness is stronger than man. And so here we are, the foolish of the world, with all of our hang-ups and hiccups and whatnots. And here we are. And this is the piano Christ wants to play. Not by strength, nor by might, but by his spirit. Let's conclude in John 15. And as we're going there, I just pose the question to you. Is there anyone in the body whose feet you hope you don't have to wash? Is there anybody in the body that when their name comes to mind, you kind of get a negative? <clears throat> Got to flush that out. Because if we take the Passover with any of that, we're bringing damnation upon ourselves. And God expects it. He says, this piano, it has 88 keys. I'm not going to get all 88. So the question is, it's not whether or not we're in the body. We're in the body. The question is whether or not the joints that we are connected to are actually supplying something to the body. And for that to take place, the spirit must be working in full measure in you, in full measure in me, in full measure of all of us, so that as we figure out who's my joint, who's the complement to me, who do I work with, who do I work alongside with, that together we can supply edification to the body. But God doesn't need all of us. He prophesies he can't have all of us. He says the piano will become unplayable. In John 15 and verse 5, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So we have to abide in Christ. The Spirit has to be flowing through us if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. Continue in my love. There's going to be a part of the piano that breaks down that's going to go to hatred and betrayal, it could be us. The only defense we have against the devil is God's Holy Spirit. And evidence that we have the Holy Spirit is seen every time we take the Passover. So brethren, I wish you a most meaningful Passover and one in which you discern the Lord's body.